1: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide, domestic violence, arson, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13.
0: Around 11 o'clock on the night of March 24th, 1991, Mark Invick lay awake, unable to sleep, when he heard a noise. He glanced out his window to see his next door neighbor, Marjorie Congdon Hagen, cutting through his backyard with her dog on a leash.
1: Seeing her in the yard made Mark suspicious. He waited until she was gone, then went outside to retrace her steps. He found a kerosene-soaked rag jammed under his window.
0: Immediately, Mark called the police. Soon after he got the call, Billy Ned of the Pima County Sheriff Department drove to Mark's house. In the two years since Marjorie moved to the tiny town of Ajo, Arizona, about 15 mysterious fires had broken out in the area. If Marjorie really was trying to burn down Mark's house, then Ned might finally have his arsonist. Ned
1: ordered several of his police officers to park up and down Mark's street in unmarked cars. Mark too watched from his bedroom with the lights off, so Marjorie would think he was asleep.
0: Three hours later, Marjorie emerged from her house once more. She lit a match and ignited the rag, still lodged in Mark's window. From his vantage point in an unmarked police car, Ned snapped four
1: photos of Marjorie in the act. Inside, Mark took more pictures, but he forgot to turn off his camera's flash.
0: The light startled Marjorie and she ran away. The police pursued and in a matter of minutes, Marjorie was under arrest. And yet, Officer Ned barely had an inkling of what Marjorie was
1: capable of. He'd soon discover that Marjorie Congdon Hagen was not only a serial arsonist, She was an alleged serial murderer.
0: Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals.
1: Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a podcast original. This is our second episode on Marjorie Congdon, whose life was dotted with a series of suspicious deaths and fires. She was a suspect in five separate murders, crimes for which she's likely to never be convicted of,
0: even to this day. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkast.com slash merch for more information.
0: Last week, we covered the early life of Marjorie Congdon. At 16, she was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder, but never treated. As an adult, she allegedly conspired with her husband, Roger Caldwell, to murder her mother, Elizabeth Congdon. Roger was sentenced to two lifetimes in prison. Marjorie was acquitted.
1: After Marjorie's trial, she struck up an affair with the married Wally Hagan. While Wally's wife was living in an assisted care facility, Marjorie allegedly poisoned her
0: during a visit. Within days, Wally's wife was dead. This week, we'll discuss Marjorie's life after she avoided conviction in three mysterious deaths. Prosecutors have never been able to prove Marjorie had anything to do with killing her mother and her nurse. Likewise, she's never stood trial for the death of her third husband, his first wife, or her late elderly friend. But Marjorie is widely suspected to be a serial murderer.
1: At the age of 47, Marjorie was acquitted of all charges related to the death of her mother on July 21, 1979. But her legal troubles were far from over. For the past three years, she'd been locked in a civil suit with her sister and her own children. They believed Marjorie murdered her mother, Elizabeth, and
0: sued to ensure that Marjorie would never receive her inheritance. Marjorie was also making enemies within her new husband's family. She'd been in an ongoing affair with the married Walter Hagen, but after his wife mysteriously died on March 30th, 1980, Marjorie made an enemy in his daughter, Nancy.
1: Nancy believed that Marjorie killed her mother, Wally's first wife, Helen Hagen. But with only her suspicions to go by, she didn't notify the police. There was no investigation and no charges were ever pressed.
0: If Marjorie had indeed killed Helen, she faced no consequences whatsoever. This was especially dangerous as Marjorie was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder at the age of 16.
1: Vanessa is going to take over the psychology from here. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Sammy. Clinical psychologist Margarita Tartakovsky explained in an article that people with APD can learn to abide by societal rules when their actions consistently return appropriate consequences. A criminal with APD is less likely to commit another crime if he or she receives a sentence, but if that person gets away with their transgression, they'll have no reason to change their behavior.
1: A week after his wife's death, Wally dropped by Nancy's home unexpectedly. He announced that he could only stay for a brief time. He was dating Marjorie now, and she was waiting for him out in the car while he spoke with Nancy.
0: Nancy remembered how her mother had suspected an affair between Wally and Marjorie. At the time, Nancy dismissed her mother's suspicions, thinking they were a paranoid symptom of Alzheimer's disease. Now that it was too late, Nancy regretted not giving more weight to Helen's claims. Soon, Marjorie
1: drove a wedge between Nancy and Wally. He'd previously had a warm relationship with his children, but for months, Wally grew distant. Nancy
0: believed Marjorie was turning him against her. Then Nancy noticed that many of her mother's valuables, including her wedding ring, were missing. She was confident that Marjorie had taken them.
1: Nancy also discovered that Wally gave large amounts of money to Marjorie. This was troubling, as Nancy worked multiple jobs to support her father. She was shocked to find that many of his bills were past
0: due, while Marjorie enjoyed the fruits of Nancy's labor. According to the Merck Manual entry on antisocial personality disorder, people with APD are often bad with money. Their lack of impulse control means that they often make decisions without considering the long-term impacts. But Nancy could never
1: prove that Marjorie was manipulating Wally and stealing from him. And even when she did occasionally catch Marjorie in a lie, Wally never wanted to hear about it. He'd put his full trust in her. He couldn't be reasoned with, even when his family was convinced that Marjorie was ruining his life.
0: Wally married Marjorie in Valley City, North Dakota on August 7, 1981, a year and a half after Helen's death. Marjorie was 49 years old, 23 years younger than her third husband. The couple told no one of their wedding plans until after they returned from their interstate road trip.
1: Soon afterward, the state of North Dakota charged her with bigamy she still hadn't filed for divorce from Roger, her second husband, who was serving two life sentences for murder.
0: The bigamy charges weren't a big concern for Marjorie. She and Wally lived together in Minnesota and bigamy wasn't a serious enough crime for North Dakota to have her extradited. The pair were content to ignore the charges and continue living their lives.
1: Marjorie still remained legally married to Roger, while her marriage to Wally wasn't recognized.
0: Marjorie saw no immediate issues with this. Psychiatrist Roxanne Dryden Edwards explained that people with APD often fail to plan ahead or to take responsibility for their own actions. This is a major factor in why so many people with untreated APD commit crimes repeatedly. It's probably also part of the reason Marjorie never bothered to sort out her legal marital issues.
1: In the summer of 1982, 50-year-old Marjorie and 73-year-old Wally decided to move to a lovely lakeside house. In order to afford it, they sold their current residence on September 1st. The buyers, a family called the Larsons, wanted to move in right away. But Marjorie and Wally convinced them to wait so they could finish some last-minute renovations.
0: On September 12th, the Larsons entered their new home to review the renovations. They noted that the work was incomplete and shoddily done. In some cases, Marjorie and Wally's changes had actually damaged the house. Strangely, the kitchen smelled strongly of gasoline.
1: On the morning of September 15th, the day that the Larsons planned to move in, the structure caught fire. A neighbor first spotted the smoke at 6.30 a.m. By that point, the house was already engulfed in flames. He said, it was damp and rainy, I remember. And I thought, gee,
0: That's kind of funny. Within 15 minutes, firefighters arrived at the scene. As they fought the flames, they noticed how quickly the fire spread. Typically, an empty house takes longer to burn because it lacks furniture and other flammable materials that serve as kindling. But on this wet, rainy day, the empty house soon became an inferno. In spite of the firefighters' best efforts, they were unable to save the structure.
1: That afternoon, after the fire was finally extinguished, the fire marshal's investigators found crumpled newspapers near the fireplace, where the blaze had originated. When the Larsons reported on the gasoline they'd smelled earlier,
0: it was clear to investigators what had happened. Someone intentionally burned down the Larsons' house.
1: Coming up next, we'll discuss Marjorie's arson charges.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer. A jazz fan or the pasta lover from 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality tv and gaming there's something for everyone on etsy whether it's a birthday an anniversary a holiday or even just a day to say thank you gift mode on etsy has you covered need to find the perfect gift don't panic try gift mode on etsy now Now back to the story. In
1: September 1982, 50-year-old Marjorie Congdon Hagen sold her home. The same day the new homeowners were supposed to move in, the house burned to the ground. It appeared to be a case of arson, and police immediately zeroed in on Marjorie as their top suspect.
0: An article titled Fire Setting, Arson, Pyromania, and the Forensic Mental Health Expert said that serial arsonists are often diagnosed with APD. A separate study, titled Arson, a Disorder of Impulse Control, noted that arson is often associated with poor impulse control, one of the main symptoms of APD.
1: In the weeks after the fire, Marjorie Congdon Hagen repeatedly called her insurance company to try to claim the payout from the fire. However, when the house burned down, it already belonged to the new buyers, the Larsons. Marjorie had no valid claim, and her calls to the insurance company only made her look more suspicious to police.
0: The arson investigation wasn't Marjorie's only legal problem. Her second husband, Roger, was focused on getting out of prison. He had a team of lawyers building a case that it was Marjorie, not Roger, who murdered Elizabeth Congdon.
1: The key to Roger's original conviction was a fingerprint that police pulled from an envelope. Whoever murdered Elizabeth also stole a rare coin from her, then mailed the coin from Duluth, Minnesota to Roger's home in Colorado. In 1977, police pulled Roger's thumbprint from the envelope as evidence that he'd stolen the coin and mailed it to
0: himself. But in 1982, five years after Roger went to prison, a fingerprint expert came forward and claimed that the print on the envelope did not belong to Roger. It's hard to say whether the original fingerprint expert lied or simply made a mistake, but his testimony from the original trial was thrown out. On
1: September 2nd, 1982, Roger was granted a retrial This was disastrous for John DeSanto, the chief prosecutor in Elizabeth's murder case. The state had already seen their top suspect, Marjorie Congdon, acquitted. If Roger was released as well, they'd be 0 for 2 for convictions. And even if Roger proved Marjorie had killed Elizabeth, she couldn't be charged again due to double jeopardy laws.
0: Plus, DeSanto didn't want to see Roger's appeal go to court, as cases like this were expensive. So he offered a plea bargain. In exchange for a confession, Roger would be released immediately, having already served five years in prison. This way, at least DeSanto could keep the successful conviction on the books. Roger
1: accepted the deal, but continued to maintain his innocence outside of court, He'd only said what he had to to get out of prison.
0: After his release, Roger moved to his hometown of Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and attempted to pick up the pieces of his life. He began dating, but his alcohol-fueled bouts of rage spurred him to beat his girlfriend. He soon had several counts of domestic violence on his record. In addition, Roger struggled to find
1: employment and felt like the local people scorned him It's hard to find a job or make friends when you're a convicted murderer.
0: Desperate for cash, Roger reached out to Marjorie's sister, Jennifer. He knew Marjorie was still embroiled in the lawsuit with her family. He told Jennifer that he had key evidence that would win the suit. He could prove that Marjorie killed Elizabeth Congdon.
1: Jennifer was intrigued, but cautious. She wanted to settle the lawsuit once and for all. But on the other hand... Roger was a drunk, Elizabeth's confessed killer, and he'd recently been charged with beating up his girlfriend. Jennifer wasn't convinced that she should trust what Roger had to say.
0: She asked Roger what kind of evidence he had, but he refused to answer. His information wasn't free. Jennifer offered $50,000 if Roger could guarantee that his evidence was convictable. Roger countered, asking for at least 100,000.
1: At this point, Jennifer balked. Roger walked away from the negotiation table with nothing. To this day, we still don't know what his persuasive evidence was or if it even actually existed.
0: Roger eventually committed suicide a few years later. In the note found by police, he wrote, "'I didn't kill those girls,' or to my knowledge ever harm a soul in my life. It was strange for Roger to claim he'd never harmed anyone
1: so soon after his domestic violence arrests, but police didn't question the circumstances too closely. His untimely death proved to be a boon for Marjorie,
0: who no longer had to deal with charges of bigamy. In another ongoing investigation, on January 15, 1983, police obtained a warrant to search Marjorie and Wally's house for any evidence connecting them to the Larsons house fire four months before.
1: Police soon found a flammable varnish that matched what was used inside the house. Then they uncovered records of numerous correspondences between Marjorie and
0: her insurance company. 3 hours after the search began, 51-year-old Marjorie Congdon Hagen was arrested and charged with second-degree arson and insurance fraud. Marjorie's arson trial began
1: on December 12, 1983. Her trial lasted through Christmas and New Year's. On January 13, 1984, the jurors gave their verdict. Marjorie refused to look at the jury as they
0: announced they'd found her Guilty. She was sentenced to two and a half years in prison and fined $10,000. Her lawyer tried to protest. At 51 years old, Marjorie had never been convicted of a previous crime. She was no threat to the community and didn't belong behind bars.
1: This was technically true. Marjorie had been tried for murder, but never convicted. But the judge, familiar with Marjorie's history upheld the sentence.
0: Marjorie spent 21 months in Shakopee Women's Prison. She was 54 when she was released early for good behavior.
1: In addition, Marjorie finally settled her six-year lawsuit over her mother's estate in 1984. Of her mother's $8 million fortune, half went to Marjorie's sister, Jennifer. Two and a half million were split between Marjorie's children and the remaining one and a half million went to Marjorie, but it didn't go far as she had spent more than that in lawyer's fees. After her release from prison, Marjorie and Wally Hagen moved to Aho, Arizona. Soon, local firefighters saw a sharp uptick in the number of fires in the area. The evidence pointed to arson, but investigators had no leads about the identity
0: of the fire starter. Then, on March 24, 1991, Marjorie's neighbor, Mark Invick, broke the case wide open. He caught Marjorie trying to burn down his house while he was inside. When she was arrested, police found matches in Marjorie's pocket.
1: The next day, police searched Marjorie's home and found kerosene lanterns and rags that were identical to the one jammed in Mark's window. Once again... 59-year-old Marjorie was charged with arson. In light of how many of Marjorie's other neighbors had been victims of recent fires,
0: police believed Marjorie was a pyromaniac. The Minds Behind the Fire by journalist Melanie Benkosme, identified numerous possible motives for serial arson. In addition to arson for profit, Other motives include revenge and pyromania, a psychological fascination with fire. Burning down Mark's home wouldn't benefit Marjorie financially, but given her incendiary pattern of behavior, she may well have grown obsessed with the thrill of committing arson. When the case eventually went to
1: trial, Marjorie tried to explain away her behavior. She claimed that she was only in Mark's backyard because her dog needed to be walked and she didn't wanna be on a public street so late at night. Marjorie said that Mark's house was already on fire when she took the shortcut through his yard. She ran away
0: because she was scared. Marjorie insisted that she was the victim of a frame-up. She claimed the police knew about her past history and planted the matches on her. She also repeatedly referenced her poor health. Arthritis made it impossible for her to light matches. Failing eyesight meant she needed kerosene lamps to see in her dark home. She was far too infirm to open Mark's window and shove a kerosene-soaked cleaning rag inside. Years earlier, during Elizabeth Congdon's murder trial, Marjorie
1: had learned how to manipulate a jury's sympathy. Now, 14 years later, she wasn't so successful. On October 29, 1992, the court found the 60 year old guilty of attempted
0: arson. As a repeat offender, Marjorie stood to receive a much lengthier sentence. And then there was the fact that homeowner Mark Indvik was inside the house when Marjorie lit the fire. The attempted murder bumped her charges up to a class two felony. That too meant the judge would be harsh with her.
1: Marjorie was sentenced to 15 years in prison. She countered that her husband Wally was in poor health and needed a full-time caretaker. The judge granted Marjorie a 24 hour reprieve before the start of her sentence. At one o'clock that afternoon, a police officer smelled gas as he walked past Marjorie's home. He checked in with Marjorie to see if everything was okay. And she explained that she'd just been cooking lunch on her gas stove.
0: Three hours later, Marjorie called Wally's son. Wally had passed away. Earlier that day, Wally had complained he was feeling fatigued and laid down for a nap. When Marjorie went to check on him a few hours later, she discovered that he was dead.
1: Wally's son asked if Marjorie had called the police yet. Marjorie said nothing in reply. Her refusal to answer left a pit in Wally's son's stomach. After their conversation ended, he immediately called the Tucson Police Department to inform them of the suspicious circumstances of his father's death.
0: Investigators arrived at the scene to find Marjorie ready with a supposed suicide note from Wally. The police entered the note into evidence, but they weren't ready to accept it was real. Her behavior was all too suspicious, and suicide didn't match the story Marjorie reported to Wally's son. They still needed to review the scene of Wally's death. Their investigation returned a cut hose
1: coiled up outside the house. Police brought the hose inside and
0: found it was the perfect length to connect from the gas stove to her bedroom. Investigators then questioned Marjorie's friends and neighbors. One witness testified that they'd seen Marjorie bring the hose inside her house earlier that day. The evidence was clear. Marjorie had intentionally asphyxiated Wally with gas. But Marjorie tried to explain it all away per usual. She told the police that she couldn't handle life in prison and her husband couldn't live without her. So they'd made a mutual suicide pact. According to Marjorie, she and Wally
1: were both supposed to asphyxiate on the gas. Wally killed himself according to their plan, but when it was Marjorie's turn, she changed her mind at the last
0: minute. The police didn't buy Marjorie's story one bit. The same day Wally died, Marjorie was arrested and charged with second degree murder.
1: But the state didn't have any concrete evidence to prove that Wally hadn't killed himself, as Marjorie claimed. Add that Marjorie was about to go to prison for different charges anyway, and the Ajo Police Department didn't see any
0: point in expending time and resources to prosecute Marjorie. They dropped their charges on November 19, 1993. Wally's murder case never made it to trial.
1: Not only did Marjorie allegedly get away with murder, but the crime paid off financially.
0: Wally's will left everything to his dear wife. Next, we'll discuss Marjorie's time in prison and how she remained legally entangled with Wally's family even after his death. Now,
1: the conclusion of our story.
0: On October 30th, 1992, one day before 60-year-old Marjorie Congdon Hagen was supposed to begin a 15-year prison sentence for arson, her husband Wally Hagen died under highly suspicious circumstances. Wally's children and the police all believed that Marjorie had murdered her husband. But a lack of evidence and Marjorie's looming prison sentence led police to drop the charges against her. Marjorie received her inheritance and got away scot-free. Nancy
1: and Wally's other children didn't contest his will, but they did sue for control of Wally's body. They wanted him buried in the same plot as his first wife,
0: Helen. Behind bars, Marjorie hired a lawyer to counter their suit she insisted that she had a greater claim to Wally's body as his widow. Nancy's lawyer countered that because of anti-bigamy laws, Marjorie and Wally were never legally married. While the civil trial
1: was going on, Wally's children took their fight to the press. In an interview with the St. Paul Pioneer Press, they suggested that Marjorie was complicit in
0: the deaths of both of their parents. But ultimately the lawsuit was long, expensive. Wally's family was forced to settle. Marjorie agreed to receive half of Wally's body. He was cremated and his ashes were split. Nancy and the other children buried their half of the ashes with their mother.
1: While Marjorie fought with the outside world, she seemed to find peace behind bars. She got along well with her fellow inmates, in fact, She was an
0: ideal prisoner. According to Harvard Medical School, people with antisocial personality disorder don't see much value in following rules. However, if they're incentivized, say by fear of punishment, people with APD can adapt and behave according to societal norms. It seems that Marjorie determined that the best way to
1: cope with her sentence was to get through it as cleanly and quickly as possible. On January 5th, 2004, after serving 12 years of her 15-year sentence, Marjorie was released. She was 72. Ordinarily, a woman of her age would put her criminal past behind her and attempt to build a new life. But Marjorie never was an ordinary
0: woman. Dr. Saba Matar and psychiatrist Farooq Khan studied elderly patients with personality disorders, including APD, in their paper, Personality Disorders in Older Adults, Diagnosis and Management. They found that often society expects older patients to grow out of their personality disorders, but in actuality, symptoms can actually become more severe as patients age. In
1: 2004, 72-year-old Marjorie moved to Tucson's Coronado Place condo community. There, she met Roger Samus, a Septuagenarian who resided in a nearby assisted living facility. The two formed a fast friendship, bonding over their love of Marjorie's new pet greyhound,
0: Blueberry. She eventually convinced Samus to grant her power of attorney over his finances. By early 2007, Marjorie handled all of Roger's personal affairs, including managing his bank account.
1: Weeks later, on March 1st, 2007, Samus passed away suddenly. Marjorie rushed to have his body cremated before an autopsy could be performed. Her power of attorney privileges allowed her to legally make this determination without consulting his family. No cause of death was ever determined.
0: Four days after Samus' death, Marjorie tried to transfer $11,000 in funds to her own personal account. But the transaction raised a red flag at Samus's bank and was halted.
1: Marjorie claimed that she didn't realize she lost her legal authority over Samus' finances after his death. She believed she still had the right to transfer his money to her account.
0: On March 22, 2007, police arrested 74-year-old Marjorie on charges of fraud and forgery. When
1: Marjorie was charged, the Greyhound Adoption Agency took back Marjorie's beloved Blueberry. She tried to sue the group for custody of the dog, but a judge threw out her case. That was probably better for Marjorie, who had a
0: higher-stakes trial to prepare for. Her long and storied criminal history meant that Marjorie could no longer convincingly play the part of a kindly housewife. Unable to rely on a jury's sympathy, Marjorie accepted a plea bargain in November 2008.
1: The 76-year-old was sentenced to three years of probation for the forgery and fraud charges. Because police were unable to determine a cause of death for Roger Samus, no charges
0: were ever filed related to his demise. As she resumed her normal life, Marjorie was quiet and kept to herself. Accounts from friends and neighbors suggested that she avoided telling people her full name and never mentioned her colorful history. But as much as Marjorie wanted to disappear, her past kept up with her. The people of Coronado
1: Place anonymously shared books and news stories with one another that detailed Marjorie's alleged crimes. Soon, they all knew the story of Elizabeth Congdon's murder and Marjorie's suspected role in it.
0: According to Marjorie's neighbors, after she lost Blueberry, Marjorie adopted a new greyhound named Raja, which she doted on. Marjorie would take Raja on daily walks, ignoring the community's leash laws. None of her neighbors pressed the issue.
1: They'd read all the newspapers and books and knew what happened to people
0: Marjorie didn't like. But Marjorie wasn't entirely scorned. She made friends with a few neighbors who would go on shopping expeditions, meet for coffee and take long walks around the neighborhood with her. Few of these friends allowed their names to be published as they wanted to avoid the media attention that came with knowing Marjorie.
1: According to Alyssa Ford, Writing for Artful Living, Marjorie's probation officers required all of her friends to sign a legal release, acknowledging that they understood and accepted the danger of getting close to a woman
0: like Marjorie. In 2010, Marjorie informed the courts that she'd begun to suffer from unspecified health problems. She was 78. The terms of Marjorie's probation kept her from moving into an assisted living facility. In November of 2010, she filed for a reduction in her sentence so she could live in a nursing home. The judge declined her request.
1: By now, Marjorie's manipulative behavior was well-known and well-documented. He wasn't going to let himself be played.
0: After the judge's refusal, Marjorie's health took a sudden turn for the better. Her health conditions disappeared almost overnight.
1: At the time of this recording, Marjorie is 87 years old. It's been nearly a decade since the end of her probation, and Marjorie has never resided in an assisted living facility. According to her friends and neighbors, the 87-year-old is very independent and in good health and spirits. She still lives in Coronado Place.
0: Today, Marjorie's childhood home, Glensheen Mansion, is owned by the University of Minnesota Duluth. The university opened the mansion to tours so guests can see the finery that the Congdon family surrounded themselves with in life and question tour guides about the murders that took place there.
1: Marjorie Congdon's life has been chronicled in numerous books. On stage, St. Paul's History Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, ran the comedy Glensheen for many years, ringing music and laughs out of the
0: dark true story. To date, Marjorie has never been formally convicted of any murders, nor has she served prison time for anything other than her two arson convictions.
1: Marjorie lived her life without ever receiving treatment for her antisocial personality disorder. If her mother, Elizabeth, had gotten Marjorie the help she needed, perhaps nearly half a dozen murders could have been prevented. Elizabeth Congdon, Velma Piedela, Walter and Helen Hagen, and Roger Samus, all might have met very different fates. Instead, Elizabeth's desire to avoid scandal led to as many as five deaths, plus countless fires and instances
0: of fraud. Mental illness creates a ripple that travels outward from the person who's diagnosed. Not only does it harm the afflicted person, but its effects can change the lives of the friends, family, and everyone around the sufferer. And so long as mental health issues are treated as shameful
1: secrets, those who are afflicted, their friends and families, and society as a whole suffer from the silent secret.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes
1: of Female Criminals as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll
0: see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Angela Jorgensen, and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.
1: Remember, you can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the podcast series, Female Criminals, on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.